You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. I'm joined, as always, in studio by Billy Galenko. My name is Brady Weller. And wow, that was that was kind of nice. The The new intro that we have for the podcast, we have a new intro and outro continuing to take steps to polish up the podcast and make it more exciting for our listeners. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed our new intro rhythm. And Billy, we have some great conversations to get into today and some really big news for the VIP platform. Yeah, yeah. I'll kind of tease, I guess, some of the news of we have also a new logo for Vint. So I'll say the podcast, what, what our, our biggest priority is having good content and good guests. So you're always going to notice the the production value tends to lag behind our website quality a little bit. <laughs> but this time we had updates at the same time. So that was really exciting. But yeah, we've been we've been looking to continue to, you know, streamline and, and upgrade the podcast. So I'm very excited for that new intro. And I hope everybody also checks out the new logo on the website. We went through our kind of head of growth. Jordan went through hundreds of logos and then the company ended up landing on this one. So I think it's pretty nice personally, pretty sharp. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like the culmination of a series of upgrades that we've made to the design and look and feel and functionality of the UX of our platform over the last couple of months. So yeah, I think this is a great capstone and really continuing to integrate all the different parts of our brand and, and tie them together and hopefully, yeah, tell a story that lines up with where we're headed in the future. So yeah, thank you all for continuing to be on this journey with us. I think probably the biggest piece of news has to be the biggest piece of news that I want to share with you this week is that we did announce two more distributions and this time full sale, two full sale of two different collections. One was our very first offering on the Vint platform back in May of 2021, which is was our California collection. We, like I said, we released that collection in May of 2021. And now I think we're about to announce our 40 third collection, I believe, 42nd, maybe. Yeah, just over 40 collections so far since May of 2021. So yeah, we've ramped ramped our collection speed up a ton since then. And yeah, we're excited to be able to return funds to our some of our first investors. We were able to sell that collection with a net return of 16.62%, or if you annualize that number at a 9.53%, return. Maybe we want to like pause and just kind of reflect on what those two numbers mean and how, you know, we can think about them in relation to one another. The total net return, which was 16.62%, is the difference in the value that we purchased the assets for and listed them on the platform and what we were actually able to sell them for net of taxes and fees. So the total return there is 16.62%. Now, we also like to provide the IRR or the annualized return number, just to help folks get a sense of if you extrapolated that number and that percentage growth out over towards the end of the year, what that number might look like. And so at an annualized rate, we were seeing a return of 9.353% for this asset. That IRR number is a good way to compare this asset class in this particular collection to other markets out there. So if you're looking just say at historical return numbers for something like the S&P 500, or, you know, if we get to the end of this year and you look back and we say, okay, the S&P was, you know, 
negative 15% in 2022 for the year. You could kind of reflect back on this collection and, and get a sense of what, if this trend continued, the annualized number would be for this asset. So yeah, we think that it's a, those are two really strong numbers, regardless of how you, you talk about them and slice them up, especially relative to the traditional markets, you know, stocks and our public equities, which have really been taking a beating over the last couple of weeks and months. Just to clarify on you're saying with the, the price that we bought and listed on the platform, just basically it's the thesis price and the mm-hmm. percentage that we are more that we were able to sell it for. So that 16% is is what our investors will be realizing on whatever they, they put in the platform as well. Right. Yeah, that's good clarification. The second collection was one that we launched in the fall of 2021. It was our Balmore Whiskey Cask collection. It was our first whiskey cask that we launched on the platform. Actually, our only to date cask whiskey that we've launched, although we do plan to have more in the future. That cask collection, it was really just a single cask, produced a net return of 29.54%. And if you look at an annualized number, we're seeing 35.49%. So obviously really strong number there. We're really proud to been able to take advantage of the market in such a quick amount of time, which is why you see that annualized number higher than you know, than the standard kind of straight net return. That just is reflective of how quickly we were able to get in and out of that asset for our investors. And, you know, the goal isn't speed of liquidation. We stick by our investment thesis on most of these collections that this is a medium to long-term hold asset. Most of these assets are, but kind of this is a case study in this idea that we're extremely active in the markets. We're always monitoring the markets and we're not going to pass up an opportunity to capture a really outsized return for investors just because maybe we're before or outside of a sale window that we provided in our thesis. So yeah, we just want to provide investors with those updates to know that to show that our product is working, that we're actively looking for opportunities in the marketplace and that we're able to, like I said, take advantage when they do come up. Yeah. Then and just to add a little bit more color to the cask, well, first, I, I also own some, own some personal casks, and I hope they do as well as this one did, because that was that was really, really exciting. I think you kind of buried the lead by by pausing after the California one. Yeah, but, but this cask, again, also is a case study in our, our kind of strategic sourcing. What, what's interesting about this cask, like we mentioned, is before is that whiskey continues to age in the barrel as opposed to in the bottle. This cask was a 98 cask which means that it's in its 24th year of life. So we strategically bought it last year when it was 23, knowing that as the number 25 approaches, independent bottlers and other bottlers will be more attracted to the cask itself, just in its nature of being becoming more valuable at these certain age statements. So we didn't anticipate the potential or the size, I guess, of the the increase being so fast and so so large. But it makes sense. You know, we basically, we lined up all the right components for a cast to appreciate. And we were able to find a buyer sooner than we had expected because it's such a quality producer. It was at the right year. It's in the right size. And all of these kind of variables came together to allow us to sell it earlier, which again, we'll consider when we're looking at our, our next range of casks as well. So why not wait until the, the 25th year for a cask like this? Is it really just the idea of, wow, this performed you know, an outsized rate to what we thought, let's just lock in profits and move on? Or, you know, was there another reason why we didn't wait until that actual 25-year statement came up? There's two angles 
for it. One would be that to be a 25 year old casket, you know, it's obviously bought and bottled in that year. So this could be an anticipation of someone getting ready to bottle next year and getting it early. Okay. Mm-hmm. The other, the other component, which is probably more likely is it's somebody who it wants to get those gains themselves. The whiskey market has been very productive in this past year. So what could be is somebody could be saying, maybe I can make a little bit more money next year. Or if I don't, like that's the other thing with whiskey casks that's kind of nice is it might be somebody kind of speculating saying, cool, I anticipate I could probably get maybe X amount more next year, maybe. But if not, then I'm fine holding it for another five years and I'll try to sell it at or maybe three years right. at 28 or 30. So it's probably somebody with a longer term horizon. They might try to play the short game. But why, based- why, would, why would we not hold until like why would we decide to sell now? versus in year 25 i understand yeah i guess yeah i definitely understand the points with but from the buyer's side but from our side is there anything strategic that we saw selling now versus waiting until year 25 yeah i think one i mean cash in hand is is always great with with the economy mm-hmm. the way it is and with with how hot scotches continued to be over the past year you know you're not always guaranteed that that's going to continue and especially with the strength of the pound right now compared to the dollar, we're also able to leverage that to kind of get more USD for us. This, but the buyer was in the UK, or we don't know exactly where the buyer itself is located, but we were working with a UK based company to make the sale. So all of these elements are kind of putting together this perfect storm for us to sell it based on where we, where we are right now. Sure. We could gamble and, and play a little bit more down the line and there was the potential, but there's also the potential for it to go down. So to be able to lock in that amount for our investors in such a short time, it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Yeah. So something that I appreciate about you and and Adam, obviously, in terms of the way and Nick, even in terms of the way that we think about, you know, our just our overall strategy for taking profits and and deciding when to buy, when to sell is I, I feel like we have a really aggressive strategy in terms of acquisition and going after like the top assets out there and really bringing the best of the best onto the platform, but then a relatively conservative strategy when it comes to, like you said, locking in profits when they're there, knowing that there'll be more opportunities in the market and we don't need to hit a grand slam on every collection, but like hitting a home run or a you know, two run home run is really good if you can do that consistently. So I appreciate the conservative nature of our yeah, our process and how that's been playing out. And yeah, and it, obviously conservative doesn't always mean meager returns. It can mean something outside like what we got here. So as an investor in this collection, actually in both collections, I feel really excited. And yeah, I hope our, our listeners do too. Yeah. Just building on the news topic, I forgot even in my notes here that we had the Fijiac news come out last week. Of, that's right, yeah. Uh, so for those who have been with Vint for a long time, our... Our third collection was, yeah, it was our third because the second was Super Tuscan. Our third collection was the Saint Emilion Upgrade Collection, which primarily featured Fijiac along with one little part of Canon. But the main impetus behind that collection was that Fijiac was rated a Premier Crew or Premier Grand Crew Class B in the Saint Emilion rankings classification system. And they were tipped to, and based on our research as well, ready to progress up to Class A. Those rankings finally came out this year, so a little over a year later, and they were indeed promoted. They were the only one promoted this year. So all of our analysis and our you know purchasing paid off. So we, we were able to get in and it's it's it bodes well, you know, for the future development of that collection. So, so that's really exciting. But again, like it's more evidence that 
our strategy and logic between our team in-house and our advisors, you know, are just providing this insight over a year in advance of what, what could potentially be happening in the market. So it's exciting. Is is it? I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but for something like a Bordeaux or a Burgundy, when you have these cataclytic events where you anticipate maybe an increase in price, do we tend to have to be a little bit more patient maybe with wines from those regions because of the volume and efficiency of the market, maybe already pricing potential things in versus maybe in whiskey and some emerging markets like wines from Napa or other regions where the markets may not be as robust or as efficient price-wise. Is it harder to capture catalysts and opportunities around catalysts in the Burgundy and Bordeaux markets, do you think? Yeah, I would definitely say so. I think Burgundy might be a little different due to the fact of the smaller volumes and mm-hmm. some of the, the personal nature of some of those things. So like when a certain winemaker stops making wine in Burgundy, you know, some of that stuff might be more quickly valuable because there's just smaller amounts okay. of it. But Fisiac, that's a great question. So a few things, and that this went into our purchasing too, is, and I was actually just meeting with a, a negotiant partner of ours yesterday. And he mentioned that he, the, the Fijiac upgrade had been kind of priced in for, for a year or so in his eyes. But that was when he was buying, you know, directly from Chateau. And so he's mm-hmm. saying like, we've been recognizing this quality from our perspective and prices have gone up, but he was saying they're continuing to rise. And that is something we took into account when purchasing these. So that, taking one step back, the, the upgrade has to do with a lot of things. The quality of wine is the key driver, but it's also uh, farming practices, uh, the types of hospitality experiences and centers and and other facilities that you have on the property. So Fujiak made a concerted effort for the past 20 years, first to upgrade the cellar and all the work in the vineyards. So basically the quality of the wine took a giant step. And you can see that in the scores from the early 2000s through the mid 2000s. So we took that into account when we started buying the wine. So we picked the wines with really high scores that kind of were, were already reaping these benefits. So that was the first step. And some of those wines were more expensive than earlier wines because they got better scores. But as they continued to follow along these policies and basically build all the infrastructure needed to be upgraded, that that has continued to be like mildly built in. But what happens now is cool. The industry knew or had a, a sense that this might happen. And now it happened and the industry is excited, but it's still going to start trickling down to the customers. So now you're going to start seeing everywhere. What are the primary Grand Cru Class A? Now there's only two. It's just Pave and Fijiac. So new investors getting into the market, collectors getting into the market who want to have, you know, start collecting these primary Grand Cru Class A's are going to be into it. And then people who buy for prestige, some of the purchasers are consumers in Asia or other people who want to, you know, only drink certain things or be in the know. Now that's where it really starts trickling out. And you start to see that that ripple effect of what are the impacts of this, not only from you know buying business to business, but down through the consumer line and in collectors in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are these are the kinds of things that, you know, when I was investing in Vint and before work with Vint, didn't even know that we were considering in terms of, you know, market dynamics and yeah, just the the variety of things that you have to monitor in order to understand the markets and and how these wines gain and lose value and yeah when are the right opportunities to buy and sell yeah it's great to hear about some of the nuances of that and I think that the this kind of upgrade collection and the changes to classifications and such really exemplify how complex some of these markets are and and how many factors go into it so thank you for sharing about that we have 
a really great conversation today. But before that, we have a, another really great collection coming up that we we need to tease. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we will announce this coming Friday. So that would be the the 16th of September 2022. We'll be announcing our next collection. And I, I can tell you guys right now, it's another whiskey collection. It's a Japanese whiskey collection featuring Kurosawa again. And it's another limited edition bottling. We have more bottles in this collection than we've had in a couple of the recent ones. So it's it's really exciting. So everybody tune in. That'll be announced noon Eastern time on Friday. But again, another another great collection. And and you guys will kind of see how this plays with some of our Kurosawa collections from the past. So our conversation today is is with a a person that I've, I've been connected with. And I kind of mentioned that for a while through the LA Psalm community. And Frank Martell, he's a senior director of wine consignment at Heritage Auctions. And he has a really interesting career in wine. And he gives us some really interesting insights to how wine auctions work and, and kind of the dynamics behind that. And then at the end, he shares a, a few bottles that he's really been enjoying, along with a, a really kind of surprising older vintage from a region in Italy that you guys need to stay tuned to hear about because it was surprised him. It, it basically was the wine of his wine tasting party, he said, and something I would have never have thought of. So definitely tune in and stay till the end. Yeah, it was cool to hear about kind of the behind the scenes of how they manage the sellers of ultra high net worth wine collectors and, and connoisseurs, both purchasing that or purchasing them, helping them to to sell those sellers, but also on the reverse side, helping newly minted wine collectors build their portfolios. So yeah, that it was really, really great conversation. Nice to hear about that side of the industry and, and how those auction houses work. Awesome. Well, enjoy our new outro as well. I think this is this kind of new beat that we have. You can almost dance to. So I don't know if that's the direction we're, we're taking our brand, but it definitely has a rhythm. Awesome. Well, see you guys <laughs> enjoy the interview. So Frank, thank you so much for joining. Welcome to, to the Vin Podcast. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I will have prefaced a little bit in the intro here, but Frank and I got connected about probably about a year ago now, actually, via the LA SOM group. He came on and did a presentation of different ways to work in wine outside of just being a sommelier. So I thought that was so fascinating that I, th- I wanted to share that with our, our listeners. So we're, we're very happy to have you. Very, very cool to share. I mean, it's been a really rewarding career for me. Yeah. So on that note, do you want to kind of talk about how you got into to wine and how that led into the, the auction space? Sure. It's, it's not a very sexy story. Mm-hmm. I took a wine tasting course to boost my GPA. <laughs> and that, that was kind of that. The guy that taught the course got me a job in his brother's wine shop at the end of that semester. And then whatever my grade point average was before, it kind of fell apart when I dropped out and they moved me into the auction department. So that was November of 97 and I've been doing it ever since. So coming up on my 26th year. Oh, wow. I wish I wish my school had wine tasting as a as an elective, I, I think I took like <laughs> photography and I probably got a C in it. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, this was the only place to go after underwater basket weaving failed me. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any specific wines or what, what kind of caught your eye in that class that kind of led you to be like, I can work in this a little bit? It, it wasn't really any one thing. And, and I'll preface this by saying that I'm awful with geography. I mean, I generally know where Burgundy is. I know left, right bank of Bordeaux. If you showed me a map of the villages of Burgundy, I'd get half of them right. <laughs> but, but the idea that there were parts of the world 
that tasted different was just this really bizarre thing to me. So that class went varietal by varietal. And on cab day, when we're drinking Napa versus Bordeaux, and I'm like, hang on a second, guys, this is the same plant. Are you sure? And as we got into Chardonnay and Pinot and some of the other grapes that are even more divergent based on the place that they're grown, it was just a neat thing. And at the end of the semester, I just needed a job. I didn't see a career waiting for me. I just took a job in a wine store. And when they moved me into the auction department, that's really where things took off because that's really sexy. Then, you know, I think the first phone call I made, I had to tell a guy that he'd spent $12,000 on a bottle of 1900 Margot. Well, that's not something that a kid from Massachusetts gets to do very often. So, so once I get into the auction side of things, I was fully immersed into it. I was working 80, 90 hour weeks and I loved every second of that. Oh, wow. So, so you were, so this is kind of the East coast kind of wine scene. So like, so I guess for some people, it's a lot easier to, if you're looking, working at your local wine shop, you might be in the middle of the country or maybe in California, you might have some exposure to a place like that. But so you were kind of closer to a, a bigger market where people were, you know, wine and fine wine was more available in general. Sure. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting the way that all that happened for New York. If you go back far enough in time, Christie's was very successful in Chicago. And now we're talking like early 90s. And they hired a consultant to say, okay, you know, how would you like us to go about growing our business in the U.S.? And the guy who was running Christie's at the time, Paul Boker, who was one of my mentors, was told, you know, we're going to close up Chicago and move to New York. And he says, that's, that's crazy. We own the action. We're doing super well. Geographically, it's far more cost effective. This is the center of the United States. It just kind of makes sense. And he was told that, well, we hired this guy and it doesn't make sense to hire a consultant and not follow through. So that was really the centralization of Christie's moving. And New York being the cultural mecca that it is, it just sort of happened to be that way. You know, center of finance. If you take a look at who our auction buyers are, yeah, there's a good number of them who are people who who love drinking good wines, but there's a, a very specific personality that's drawn to auctions and and you know multiple digit bottles of wine. So all of that kind of plays together to make New York the hub of the world for that period of time when auctions proliferated. And I was really lucky to be there at that time. It wasn't so much calculating as I'm here, I need a job, they're going to pay me and I get to drink at my desk. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess I was going to kind of start with kind of how is heritage kind of different? Cause you, uh, you work for the heritage auction house, how that's different than Christie's and Sotheby's, but maybe we wanted to start with kind of what is, what is wine? as like a, how, how does it different than other auctionable items? And then kind of what's, what's that process look oh, like? I love that question. Yeah. I love that question. You know, at Heritage, we do artwork and coins and comics. And so, you know, I've, I've had a lot of exposure to my fellow consignment directors, the other guys that head up categories. And one of the things that differentiates Heritage is all of us are actually collectors ourselves. We don't really have many people whose mom and dad was rich and got us a job at the auction house, you know, we're all people who got into it passionately and, and we're all an active participant in our elected fields. So what really separates wine from what all of my other friends are dealing with at Heritage is, you know, it's kind of worth 100% of what it's worth or it's worth zero. You know, if you've got a Mickey Mantle card that's torn in half, it still has some value to it. If you've got a coin that was struck for Julius Caesar's troops, 
which by the way, I've seen and held and is impossibly cool. Wow. Um, you know, that could be scuffed and filthy. It still has value, but a bottle of wine that spent its life in the attic is worth nothing. You can't even sell it for posterity. So it really is a time capsule and it's a time capsule with an expiration date. You know, further, the guys that are buying Detective Comics 43, you know, the first appearance of Batman for a million dollars. If the economy falls apart and he reads the book and cracks it out of its plastic, it's still worth a few hundred thousand dollars. If, if any bottle that we opened was to be worth anything when we were done with it, we wouldn't have done a very good job. <laughs> you open the wine and it's worth zero. So effectively, it's an investment by default because it's expensive and you acquire lots of different samples and lots of different things, but it's an investment that you understand has an absolute value of zero dollars. That's why that psychology of who's buying these things is so key because it is by its very nature wasteful. A little, a little divergent here, but I mean, we don't really deal, I guess, in this space, but do you ever see bottles, say, maybe from the 40s in France that you know, didn't have, are undrinkable maybe, but they have historical significance. Have you come across any bottles like that, that you've been able to trace the historical significance of a single bottle, even though it's not consumable anymore and it's just valuable as a historical asset? Mm, not really, because unfortunately, okay. another place where wine is different is, you know, Romani Conti, they make 400 cases. That's not a lot for the whole population of the drinking world, but that's almost 5,000 bottles. So there isn't a bottle that you put your hands on and you're like, oh my God, this is it. With one exception that I'm glad you gave me a moment to pump. I have the only bottle of 91 Screaming Eagle I've ever heard of coming up for our September auction. And that was made for friends and family. It was made in tiny, tiny quantities. Mm -hmm. And I was able to chase down Heidi Barrett, send her pictures and get a thumbs up on that. So that's about as close as I get to the things that you describe. Usually what'll end up happening, and this is sort of a segue into other things if, if we want to talk about them later. But sure. most of those phone calls will be a, a client who's 372 years old and has a collection and wants us to come look at it. So there was a guy here in LA and it was all 45 Latour, 52 Latash, <laughs> but it had been standing upright in his kitchen for the better part of 70 years. <laughs> so I had to tell this guy that the wine isn't worth anything. And he wasn't belligerent. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He was really sad and he started crying. He says, but these are my wines. Can we do nothing with them? This would have been, I guess, 2004 or so. And there were a lot less sinister actors out in the world. Everybody knows Rudy's name. So I told the guy, look, I'll bring a couple bottles home with me. I'll open them. If they're reasonably drinkable, meaning they don't cause dysentery, and they're not matterized. And if, they, if they resemble wine, we'll sell them, but we'll sell them with a massive disclaimer and we'll sell them without reserve and without estimate. We'll just let people decide what they'd like to spend for the sake of posterity. Mm -hmm. The wines were not actually atrocious and the 45 Latour was possibly the best 45 Latour that I'd had. So we put them into the catalog without mentioning a name other than Rudy's. His entire collection was bought. It was bought at full market value and it was bought by Rudy and another guy who's still in the wine business today. So I never went back and did that ever again because those <laughs> wow. bottles all went back into circulation and now we're much more sensitive to those things. Well, that's a crazy story. Now I didn't, 
Also, who just stores that many bottles of wine just upright in their kitchen? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big kitchen. I would say that like, or a question on that front would be like, really reading the billionaire's vinegar and having some of those Thomas Jefferson bottles. Now those from like, I mean, the quote unquote Thomas Jefferson bottles, they, most of them were proved to be fake too, or if not all, those were never meant to be, I mean, they can be consumed, but I mean, after like, you know, 200 plus years, I would assume that most people are getting those for those historical sake. Probably. Yeah. I mean, we don't sell many things that are that, that old. Another thing that sets heritage apart I have a billion dollar company behind me, so I'm not under any pressure to find ways to sell stuff that's borderline. If I don't trust something, then we just don't sell it. And when you get into stuff that's that old, without receipts, without if it's somebody I know, and I know that the guy was collecting in the days of Hubline and and his sourcing was, for lack of a better word, innocent, though that's not the word I'm looking for. But if, but if I know that his sources were just by definition more accountable then then we're willing to do some things. But you know, you don't have to go but that far back. The most counterfeited wine in the world is Jaillet. And I turn away almost every bottle of Jaillet that gets offered to me because there's just no way to know. I mean, fakes are getting better and better. The counterfeiters are getting more and more sophisticated. And it's just not worth a few thousand dollars of commissions to to sell that stuff. So what what is the the process? So say somebody, I want to consign my wines. Can you walk us through kind of like how it goes from you first seeing it to the actual auction table? Sure. Because we have to assume that everything is in good condition, unlike some other categories, we don't need to see photos right away. And and you know, we do these awesome consignment fairs. It's a little antiques road showy where there's a line out the door and people come in with their stuff. Nobody's carrying in their 10,000 bottle wine collection. So we're, we're already outside the norm in the way that collectibles go through their transaction process. We receive a list and we do an appraisal based on the idea that these wines are all going to be in age-appropriate condition. That doesn't mean perfect. We're not assuming that there isn't a label with a scuff. We know that those conditions are out there, but because it's worth everything or it's worth nothing, putting the time into that appraisal is quite easy. So somebody sends us the list, we give them back their, their numbers. In the last few years, that's been really easy because the market has been so hot. In some years, you just sort of have to look at somebody and say, hey, listen, I'm really sorry that you paid too much for Harlan. You're not going to lose money selling Harlan. You lost money when you bought it for eight or $900 plus tax and tip. So, so those conversations, for the most part, are very transparent. You know, we don't, we don't really put our ethos on the numbers. The numbers are the numbers. Some auction houses artificially inflate their figures to flatter their consigners. Other auction houses artificially suppress their estimates to lure bidders in. We're sort of the opinion of if a bottle is worth $100, it's worth $100. So the estimate's 90 to 120. And if it sells at 90, that's a little bit below. If it sells at a 120, it's a little bit above. So we're, we're pretty candid about that stuff. And after those numbers are okay, unless it's a huge collection, we can move to transporting it because the inspection is the most important thing that we do. So for smaller collections, it gets shipped into our location, which is of course, temperature and humidity controlled. We like to take our time, old bottles. Sometimes you have to cut capsules and make sure that the cork is in good condition. You know, and if anything is in doubt, we have to taste a couple samples. It's something I think your listeners and readers might find really interesting though. There's 
part of our consignment agreement that permits us to open up to three bottles of wine for quality assurance. And everybody, everybody protests and says, well, you're not opening my 90 Cheval Blanc to find out if my collection is good. And you're like, okay, let's back up a little bit. I don't want to open your 90 Cheval Blanc. I want to sell your 90 Cheval Blanc because that's how I'm going to make money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to open your 73 Lynch Bage. I want to open your 58 Gloria. And in one case, I was picking up a collection in Reno that was worth seven or $800,000. He says, go ahead and take what you want to take, but we're going to drink them together. So I know you're not screwing me. I said, okay, cool. I picked 77 Villa Mount Eden Pinot Noir. I took a 76 Montalena Chardonnay. And as I was reaching for an early Phelps cab, he says, what are you doing? You're absolutely trying to screw me. You're picking these wines that can't possibly be good. And I said, you know, look, well, I'm not trying to drink them because I think they're going to be tasty, but those wines that have no fruit, no charm, no character, no pedigree are going to show heat damage really quickly. And that's what we're trying to look for in sort of a long shot way of saying, you know, we try to drink vulnerable wines that somebody's had a long time because that's where we get the quickest and most obvious expression of damage. And, and so once we've got that done, building the catalog is pretty simple and straightforward. You know, the art of it is bundling things for sale because almost none of our consignments are case quantities. All of them include really high value stuff and really low value stuff. What I was taught by one of my consigners lovingly is mother-in-law wine. My, my mother-in-law knows that I'm into wine and I'm not opening Petrus for her. So I have to keep the stuff that, <laughs> that she'll drink, but I have to drink it too. So it's pretty good. And, and that's kind of it. That's, that's an auction built. So one quick question on, on when you're tasting, can you describe for our listeners what the difference between like a heat damage wine and a wine that's just old? And maybe past its prime is? Ah, that's a really good question. It's hard to describe. I mean, heat damage does present a few things. Alcohol becomes very present and, and it'll pull that out of whack. Fruit tends to get this sort of raisiny, stewy quality to it. If you haven't had the wine before or you don't have enough exemplars, you might not necessarily be able to pick out heat damage very quickly, as opposed to things like oxidation, where the, the wine gets really cloudy and, and matterization where it gets that really sherried quality. Those are really obvious flaws. Heat damage, it depends on how much damage it had, how long ago that had that, that damage occurred. That, that's not easy to pull out. But the conversation that we have, and it doesn't matter if it's internally or if somebody buys something that they're not sure they like, it absolutely happens that we say, God, this bottle of wine is awful. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's terrible. And it's yeah. terrible because it wasn't made well, not because anything happened to it. Yeah. And that can happen even within single cases. The rest of the case could be good and one bottle yeah. goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so the auction rules are pretty straightforward. If you buy something that is well-made, well-stored, and you don't like it, that's buyer beware. That's just bad luck. If you buy something that is, has a flaw that's naturally occurring, if it's pre-moxed, burgundy, if it's corked, that's also bad luck. If it's something that was created by a human, if our consigner didn't take care of things, if we didn't do our homework to make sure we're presenting you with the best example of that label, then we'll take that stuff back. Hmm. Interesting. When you're looking at capsules and some of those other things, what is your perspective on, I guess, one, can you just talk about what you're looking for? And then two, can you talk about 
what your perspective on like Maureen Downey and her take that, you know, uh, an enormous percentage of fine wine bottles are fake? Sure. I'll begin by saying there are certain parts of the forensics that I obviously can't get into uh, because right. I don't teach a bank robber what, what the vault codes are. But, you know, we're looking first and foremost for things that are not terribly sinister. If the cork is depressed, is it a winery like Behringer where the corks are always depressed because the machines aren't always calibrated carefully? A Behringer with a slightly depressed cork doesn't mean anything to me. But if it's Loire, you take a really close look at that because she overfills her bottles. And if it's depressed, that might be an indication of some problem. Not a specific problem, but it would pique your interest. We're looking for crown capsules. We're looking for signs that the capsule might have been removed and replaced. And that's a lot of the work that Maureen does. I'll say I've worked with Maureen for a long time. She and I were both young guppies in this business at the same time. And I love her to pieces. And working with her is a treat in the sense that we have always had a very, very strict rule. If we don't agree that something, something is healthy and authentic, there's no pressure to sell it and, and no hard feelings and no trying to talk the other person into it. I think this Rouget is bad. Really? Because I think it's good. I see all these things that are good. Don't worry about it. We won't deal with that bottle. I don't necessarily agree with her in terms of the volume of what's fake out there. I think that you have to take a close look at very specific examples. So, for example, Jaye, 82 Petrus, there's a few things that you know have been produced in large volumes. And, and those are things that you take special care for. You learn about the types of glass that they should be in. And you become very, very quick to walk away from them if they just, I'm being facetious, but if they smell wrong, you just sort of take a look at something and you're like, okay, this guy has 15 cases of 82 Petras to sell and he's not selling anything else. I can't find anything wrong with these wines, but I better not touch this. Hmm. It's really interesting. Talking the, the the stuff you're talking about in terms of vetting the wines when they come through is extremely interesting to me. I'm I'm wondering to kind of go a little bit different direction. We've talked about sellers and how you engage with them. Do you have a lot of potential buyers come to you and say, "I'm looking for X Y Z wines from you know particular producer or particular vintage"? Um, yeah. Do you work closely with buyers that way to 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 uncover things that they're looking for? Yeah, we we worked a lot more closely with buyers 20 years ago when this was still a fairly fledgling business. Wine Searcher wasn't on everybody's browser bar. So if somebody was looking for something, we kind of knew where those bottles were because we had sold them in the past and we had a database of those things. Nowadays, there's a lot more knowledge. People have been reading Parker for a long time without getting into whether the wine advocate is a good or a bad source, but they've been reading and they kind of have it figured out for themselves. So a lot of what we get put out on are hunt and peck missions. Hey, my mom was born in 33. What's good from 33? Well, nothing is good from 33. So let's start experimenting and see what we can find inside of your budget. Or occasionally we get the really awesome seller builds, which will be somebody who says, Hey, listen, I just sold my company for 260 million. Somebody poured insignia for me and I loved it, but I don't want to buy foolishly. So what should I do? Um, mm -hmm. And those are the guys where you really get an enormous amount of appreciation, but more than that, you get an awful lot of fun out of the work. Like he's happy because his cellar has been built by a pro and, and he has been taught why his cellar is really important, but I got to spend somebody else's money and build my cellar. 
I don't get to drink my That's cellar, awesome. yeah. but I get to help him build my cellar, which is mm -hmm. which is really rewarding. How do you go about building a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar million dollar cellar from scratch like that? Does it just depend on the on the buyer, I guess? But well, I, I don't speak for the way other people do it, but in my view, it's a lot of telling him no. He says, "I just mm -hmm. had insignia and I love it, so I'm going to buy fifteen cases of each of them." And you're like, "You are going to run out of space." And you're not going to love this wine that much mm. for that long. So, so it's a lot of putting the brakes on and saying, you know, let's pull the reins in a little bit. It's cool to love insignia. In fact, I don't, at this stage of my career, I've had most everything and I can find love at every price point. It's not, it's not a matter of pedigree or trying to snob somebody up, but saying there's a lot out there that you haven't tried yet. So we start small. Here's a mixed lot of 24 red burgundies, 24 different assorted Bordeaux. Let's see what you like now. And we'll start buying that stuff progressively and slowly. If you like those vintages, then, all right, let's go hunting and pecking for some of the more important vintages that you're either backfilling or you're buying to lay down for a long time. But, but it's always super restrained. I really do like that. I should get 10 cases. No, you should get three cases. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because when your sellers are all full, invariably i'm gonna to have to come in weed out 30 percent of it that you didn't wish was there you're gonna sell that stuff typically for even money a little bit of a loss it's not you're not going to take a bath on that stuff but but let's build this organically and carefully so that you don't have that problem these people buying to drink and share or, or are they buying partially for that partially for potential investment down the line does it just depend i mean two one or two cases of any given wine in any given vintage is a lot of wine, <laughs> you know, from yeah. a single, you know, well, like two cases of insignia is a lot of insignia to have in a, you know, a single seller just, just times, for your personal consumption times 10 vintages. Yeah. But, right. But you know, at some point you have to address the elephant in the room, which is that most of our clients are extremely wealthy people, you know, for somebody to drop $50,000 in insignia, well, they have lots and they're not going to miss that money necessarily. It is a very small percentage of our buyers who are buying for investment. And ironically, those are the people who have less in total assets. You know, if you build a $100,000 or $200,000 collection very, very carefully, a lot of those collectors turn out to be people where that, that is a disproportionate amount of their portfolio. And they love those wines and they knew that those wines were going to appreciate, but that's a meaningful sum of money to them. Whereas somebody who's consigning a million dollars of wine already has $50 million in real estate and that, that doesn't really do very much for them. So, you know, you sort of take the investors carefully and you say, listen, if, if you're going to do this, forgive me, but don't, don't listen to anybody's podcast and think that they're going to turn you on to something that's a secret because there really aren't any secrets left. Yeah. You know, the secret is wait for 90 Latour to be cheap. It was 100 points. It got downgraded, which means sometimes it is inexpensive. And if you buy that opportunistically, you invest wisely, then that'll be worth more money someday. But buying futures is almost a zero sum because they're so expensive now. You have to wait so many years for them to pick up value. And when it's done, you could have just bought them when they were mature for a less net investment when you take into account storage costs, opportunity costs, and whatnot. So, you know, just making sure that somebody understands if you're buying 2019 Bordeaux to lay down, it better be because you're laying it down because you plan on drinking it because it's not necessarily a great investment. 
You know, we, we looked at 2005, 2010, which were the vintages that really changed the world for us. And, you know, a lot of those vintages took five or six years to be worth five to 10% more on their money. And a lot of people are living in the days where 82 Mouton, yeah, it was $350 a case on futures. And 96 Lafitte was $1,300 on futures. That ship has sailed. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I was just meeting with a, a negotiant partner of ours yesterday talking about that. And it is interesting to, to see the, how the Chateau are kind of reining in the amount of wine released, especially at Entrepreneur. And, and yep. you know, and kind of, I guess, 2019 itself, when that was released, there was that, that COVID time, which saw a little bit of reshuffling in the pricing. So we've had Entrepreneur collections here. So we're, we're still still think there can be a way to work it. But to your point, yeah, it's an interesting approach. And it's not certainly not what it once was. But it's part ago. of a it's it's got to be part of a diverse portfolio. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have a certain amount of growth stocks and you have a certain amount of T bills. You know, futures, you're not going to lose money on them. It's a it's a solid place to store cash. And one of the things that's awesome about wine as an investment vehicle is it is a global market. You know, the, the market for Mickey Mantle, the market for Babe Ruth, the market for Batman, it might be global, but it's not so universally welcomed as is wine social currency among the elite. So if, if the economy in the US falls apart, your 90 Cheval Blanc is worth what it's worth in Hong Kong still. You know, there's, there's a lot of hedging your bets and I don't mean that you shouldn't own them, but you know, the way, the way to earn money investing in wine is to say, okay, next year is 2023. That means that people are going to be buying their 50, 60, 70th anniversary. You should have been buying their anniversary wines at the start of this year and you'll earn 10% on your money just when those things get expensive and people start looking for last minute gifts. You know, you have to buy opportunistically. You have to say, okay, I don't really need AT&T stock, but it's so cheap. I'm going to pick it up and, and I'll offload it when it comes back to normal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So speaking of trends and, and things you're seeing, and you mentioned how, how hot the auction market kind of been, is it, is it still driven by Burgundies and, and some of these top vintages of Bordeaux or what, what are you seeing? Sure. Well, I think most luxury assets have polarized. There's Hermes and there's everything else. There's Ferrari and there's everything else. And it's not to devalue McLaren and Lamborghini or Louis Vuitton, but you know Patek Philippe and everything else. So DRC, Petrus have really put distance between themselves. And part of that is scarcity. Part of it is quality. You know, that, that QPR ratio is really clutch. But, you know, the other thing that I think is really interesting about wine and different than other collectibles that we touched upon, upon before is that the population of these things is always dwindling. There isn't more 90 Latour being made right now. And there isn't more 90 Latash being made right now. So every year that population dwindles, supply shrinks. And every year there's a new class of people who have made money for the first time. So there's, increasing demand and shrinking supply, prices are going to go up if you're buying things of that caliber. And at the top of that pyramid, once you get into five, six, seven thousand $7,000 a bottle, after the economy falls to hell and everybody is worth 18% of what they were worth, a billionaire is still drinking DRC. That makes a lot of sense. Have you seen any emerging regions or any other regions kind of cracking that top tier at all? Or is it just of the big producers from the main? Yeah. No, 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 sort of. I think there's, there's evidence. And and a lot of that was actually 
surreptitiously drawn out by Burgundy because Burgundy used to be the place in the world where you could drink the best for the least money. And that was to say that when I started drinking Burgundy, 90 Loire Richebourg was $1,200 or $1,300, but the 94 was 150 And even at $10 an hour, you know, a little bit of bread and water for dinner and you can afford 150 bucks. So over a period of time, the wealthier people started drinking off vintages too, which was really unfair to me. But, you know, those, those great producers make great, great wine every year. So as we were priced out of value Burgundy, you start looking for, all right, where is the next best $150 for me to spend? So Cornac got really expensive really quickly. Saumur, you know, Clos Rougeard got really expensive really quickly. And as we've been priced out of each of those markets, we're kind of like lo- locusts, you know, that we picked up Pimonte and Bartolo Mascarolo went from 150 to 300. So, so there's a surge and there, there really is a measurement at that $150 price point where those the people who, who drink in that price point have some money. They may not have the money to drink $1,000 bottles. So the best expression of wine that they can afford is always going to get pushed up to that next tier. You don't see very often something that's worth $30 to $50 cracking $150 to $200. And the last time that I can think of that happening was probably Sine Quanon. Mm-hmm. You know, Sine Quanon was a, was a $80 to $120 bottle for a few years for, for a while. Manfred had his motorcycle accident and suddenly that got crazy and, and has stayed crazy. But no, yeah, you, can't, you, can't, you can't buy a bottle of SQN for under like three or $400 now. No. And the stuff that he's made that's really rare, you know, you're looking at 750 plus. Oh, and, and that's that's real money. You know, at that point, you have to start as a wine lover, you have to start examining whether your money is being spent as effectively as it might be, because that $700 is, you know, seven or eight bottles of Sean Thackeray Orion, which in my view is the best Syrah that California has ever made. You know, if you can afford to buy Screaming Eagle for $3,000 and continue buying 83 Cheval Blanc, great, have at it. It's worth it because at some point it's not about value, it's the cost of admission. But if you're buying Screaming Eagle means that you can't afford 83 Cheval Blanc anymore. You have to reconsider whether that's something that you needed to do. And it's, it really is for everybody that the, the most divine application of wine knowledge is drinking the best you can without having to throw money at the wall. That makes a lot of sense. I guess, so one of our last, and you know, we appreciate your your time here, so I don't want to run too far. Over. So I guess a couple of things I want to get into. One is, what is the most memorable auction you've kind of, or thing you've consigned? I know this 91 Screaming Eagle sounds really special. Is there anything else that either the auction itself went crazy and the bidding went way more than you expected or the asset itself was just really neat? Yeah, it, it, you know, it doesn't happen as often as it does with other categories. You know, when when Heritage found a baseball bat that was the first bat hit for a home run in Yankee Stadium. In fact, it was the first home run Babe Ruth hit in the new Yankee Stadium. That bat was like the most important thing in their world. We don't have a lot of things like that. But one example that I found really, really, really rewarding was when we did a couple of consignments with Masandra in Ukraine, whom now Russia and Crimea. But, you know, there's so much history in those buildings. Mm-hmm. And we got to taste into the late 1700s. And, and a lot of these were wines that were in Tsar Nicholas II's palace. And coming back and sharing that story was incredible. 
because when I come home from tasting in the Loire Valley and I say, hey, listen, I found this great Sancerre or Claude Rougeard made another great wine, it doesn't really shock anybody. But when you come back and you say, listen, I have a fortified Muscat from the south coast of Ukraine, which, by the way, is tropical. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was a, a great one. In terms of the things that go really crazy, you know, we sold some Vusipage DRC, of which only a few bottles have turned up in the past. And I think that made 36,000 or something like that. There have been a few things along the way, but what really becomes meaningful, having been in the business this long, is I got into this business when I was 21. So I was 21 when my clients were 40 or 50, but I'm 46 and they're much older. And so I'm selling a lot of collections for friends that aren't here anymore. And that's really hard mm -hmm. because, you know, I'll open up a box you know, and you've done a pretty good job choking back tears till then. And then you pop the box open. You're like, God damn it. Bob and I were going to drink this together. And that becomes very personal. So it, it might be 88 Pichon Lalande, or it could absolutely be 90 Crow Parentu. But, but it's the, the human side of it is what really pushes all that into the next level of caring. It's really interesting to me that the, the part, the auction side of the wine buying and selling business seems to have the most passion and the most kind of like human element to me with it, whether, I mean, I guess maybe when you're buying directly, for, directly from producer, but I feel like a lot of it's emotionally driven and has that kind of more underlying relationship than, than maybe just buying from your local merchant that gets you an allocation sure. every year. So. Well, I mean, it is, first of all, it's where all the finest wines are concentrated. And most of the people who are selling back vintages at retail are buying at auction and, and they've got a buyer base to turn that stuff around. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it's value driven as well. But, but it is personal because you can say this is the, the, the Bill Koch collection or what have you. And, you know, there's a certain fantasy. There's a certain regard for the idea that this is a wine that was really loved and cared for. And you don't really get to see that at retail. You know, we'll offer... In, in the September auction, we're selling the last piece of the Roberts collection. And that was a seller that I've sold about a million dollars out of so far. Unfortunately, this is another client who passed. But if you're going to buy a bottle of wine that costs you $500 or $600, you'd much rather spend $550 or $650 and get it from his seller because he bought everything on release. He stored it in an immaculate cellar. And I know that because I knew him. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to tell his story. You know, there is a lot more of that at auction than there is in, in the sort of sterile environment of this was on a shelf, I bought it and I drank it. Yeah, I like that idea. It's very intimate of going into someone's, you know, maybe they have a private cellar at their home and you're actually going going to their their home, into their cellar. And, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's extremely personal, something that they've cared for. I was, I was going to ask what, you know, just for you personally, what are you drinking when you celebrate or what are you drinking on a Tuesday night then? Oh, you know, it's changed a lot over the years. It was Burgundy for a long time. And and if I was... On a Tuesday? I would drink Burgundy <laughs> exclusively if I could, not because it's the only thing that I love, but because I know exactly what I want and I know exactly where to get mm -hmm. it. But nowadays, I really get excited by opening things that have no business being terrific. I like opening weird bottles. I did a tasting party a couple of weeks ago in which I opened... 59 Montrose, I opened 61 Favely Eschazo, I opened some really cool things. The wine that absolutely stole the dinner was a 62 Rufino Chianti, 
that wine at auction would be worth certainly less than a hundred, probably worth worth less than fifty. <laughs> and it was unbelievably, unspeakably awesome. And I've kind of already screwed myself because I swore I was never going to tell anybody <laughs> at the risk of making it more expensive <laughs> for my future. You know, I like opening old, old, old Aussies. I like opening things that I haven't tried before. That's crazy. That Chianti goes back to like the, the fiasco days, like, you know, things well, back then. Nobody yeah. has any idea what was in that bottle, but it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Do you have you gotten into spirits at all or does heritage kind of go into spirits on that side have you seen any trickle over or do you see your buyers buying in both or there's a unique buyer for each side we haven't at heritage yet if we did it wouldn't be in california because it's illegal in california Hmm. but one of my friends is the national brand ambassador for mccallan and he's now handling all their private relations private client wealth management relationships again and he and I have tried so, so, so hard to share lists because we're not competitors and our target audience appears like it should be the same. And it's really not. Wine is one of those things where, where the party is opening 20 bottles. Hurry up, finish that glass. I've got something else I want you to try. Whereas spirits are harder to replace. And, you know, you take a couple of sips, you put the bottle away and you say, hey, it was nice seeing you it's hard to sit down and drink a bunch of bottles of scotch <laughs> and you probably shouldn't do that. So it is a different clientele, but we get requests for that all the time. And it's something that we'd really like to expand into. Awesome. Well, those are, those are all my questions. I really appreciate all the stories. And now I kind of want to go find some, some old Chianti. Yeah. I, we won't, <laughs> we won't drive up the prices. Maybe just one. <laughs> no. And if you ever see it, 27 Gatinara, who knew? <laughs> mm. All right. I'll write that down now. Well, do you have any other questions, Brady? This is cool. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate it, Frank. Oh, guys, this has been a blast. I have a wealth of information that has absolutely no survival value. So putting this out (laughs) in the world is really, really satisfying. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.